Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello. Uh, welcome, everyone, to the Commonwealth Club. My name is Adam Hirschfelder. I'm with the programming team here at the club. Our main featured speaker is the new head of the Public Policy Institute of California, uh, the former Chief Justice of the California Supreme Court, Tani Kantil Sakaue, and we are thrilled to have her here for the first time. And she will be in conversation with Dean David Wilson from the Goldman School of Public Policy at the University of California. And I will bring both of them to the stage. Thank you. Hello. Uh, first, I want to say thank you for the kind introduction and kind remarks. And on behalf of Carol Chris, the Chancellor of the University of California, Berkeley, and our Provost Ben Hermelin, I'd like to say that I'm deeply honored to be here on the stage of the oldest and the most prominent public affairs forum in the world. I'm looking forward to spending time with everyone and our esteemed guests, Tani Cantil Sakauye, who is now the president and CEO of PPIC. But before I say uh, more about Tani and her background, I just want to, to mark a little bit about the historic nature of the occasion. The Goldman School of Public Policy was founded in 1969 as a place to really advance conversation on good public policy making and creating a cadre of analysts who do the work of creating good public policy. We're ranked number one in policy analysis by US News and World Reports, number two in social policy, number three in public affairs, and number four in environmental policy and management. Now we're gonna check on those last three rankings and we think that there was some nefariousness around the votes, but we're gonna accept the results of that election. So the, the Goldman School has more than 300 students and they're all Berkeley change makers, really seeking to make a difference. We have over 50 faculty engaging in cutting edge research and we have a group of staff that are dedicated to channeling our mission around the public good. Tonight, we are ultimately here to celebrate and have conversations with Tani. She was the 28th Chief Justice of the State, uh, State of California Supreme Court. She served until just recently in that role, and thank you for your service. Thanks. She attended uh, McClatchy High School in Sacramento and Sacramento City College before receiving your bachelor's degree from UC Davis. Go UC. Mm -hmm. Wow, okay. Uh, she then graduated from the law school at UC Davis, the Martin Luther King Jr. Law School, and worked as a deputy district attorney for the Sacramento County District Attorney's Office. From there, she worked in a variety of public sector roles, including senior staff to Governor Dukamian in two capacities. She also later served uh, as legislative secretary and then on the bench at the municipal, county and local levels and the appellate level as well. And ultimately, of course, ser served on the state Supreme Court, an active volunteer, really engaging in a host of nonprofit and professional boards. And I was really pleased to see that you remember the Foundation for Democracy and Justice and actively engaged in uh, a civic learning initiative, your constitution, and we'd love to hear more about that. Uh, you're married to Mark Sakuye, a retired police lieutenant, just in case anybody has you know, ideas. Uh, and you have two daughters, Hannah and Claire, who are doing great work, one potential graduate student and another in professional work. Yes. We'll learn more about them. So now you help po you're poised to lead uh, PPIC into the future and thinking about all the opportunities that come along with that. Um, before we get into questions, one more reminder, if you have any questions uh, for Tani or for me, please write them down on the card under your seats and they'll be passed to me during the event. And if you're watching online, please put them into the YouTube chat feature and questions will be forwarded to me throughout the program. And I hope to get to as many of them as possible. So let's dive right in. Uh, you've got a lot of experience in government and public sector work, and you grew up uh, in and around Sacramento. When you reflect back on your upbringing and your experiences, what led you to have a leadership mindset? It's clear that you're a leader, and it, some of it may be innate, some of it may be nurtured, but how'd you get there? Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here at the Commonwealth Club. What a distinguished organization, and I'm happy and proud to be invited and to share the stage with you. Well, thank you. My reflections on, I think, how I became a leader is, I, I don't think about how I became a leader. I think about how I grew up. So I grew up in a Filipino community, and we created our own way of socializing together, events, programs, 
And I grew up around a number of Filipino aunties. <laughs> so everyone in the community was an auntie. And they were the kind of women who I often describe as they looked like hothouse orchids, but they had spines of steel. And they organized the event. They sold raffle tickets. They showed up. They cooked for the event. They changed into their Filipina outfits. They they orchestrated the event. They emceed the event. They closed it down. Then they cleaned the kitchen and mopped the floors and went home. And so in that community, you are always tasked with duties and responsibilities and thinking about others and working with a lot of people who have a lot of different opinions and are emotional. And I learned from them how to navigate that life and to really enjoy working in community with people. All ideas are improved when everyone has a say in it. It's almost like a university of the aunties. We should all probably take a few courses in that to learn how to get through some of the emotional challenges. That's, that's really a great story. So any specific life events that said to you, I actually do want to make a difference in, in public service, anything in your university experience or maybe high school that led you to start kind of going down that track? I think, yes. I think, well, what happened early on in my life was that we were evicted from our home by eminent domain when we grew up. My family had land and they bought property in downtown Sacramento and we lived in an alley that we built out a domain where my grandmother lived, we lived, we hosted a lot of families. And one of my earliest childhood memories, which are just pretty vivid, is that we were evicted by eminent domain and my mother went to court and she went pro se to fight eminent domain, which we all know is, is a loser even if you have a great attorney. And she came away feeling humiliated. She came away feeling marginalized and poorly treated. And I was a child. I was under 10. And I knew this of my mother, this proud Filipina, how she felt she was treated. So early on, I was aware of a world that we didn't understand and that was hurtful and that moved our family and split our family as a result of having to live in different places. And it was in a community college that I met a professor uh, who said to me, you don't know what you can do until you try to do it. And that was really the first time any, any teacher had paid any attention to me beyond class. And he happened to also be my speech and debate coach. So he was always pushing, pushing for me to be out of my comfort zone. Very good. Sounds like you had an early experience with injustice. And it's kind of ironic that you, you became kind of the head of a court charged with distributing justice. Yes. It uh, certainly animates how I see the world and what I see in the world and what I observe, right? What we, of all the different stimuli, what are we all looking at? And so that has been something that has stuck with me. So you, were, uh, you weren't retired, but you were moving in a direction towards kind of ending your time as chief justice. And I'm sure you had all of these aspirations of potentially great vacations, you know, at some point thinking about what you would do after you stepped down, but why PPIC? Why now? What kinds of uh, things were you thinking about uh, when this opportunity came and, and why did you ultimately decide to, to take the leadership role? Thank you. That's a great question. And for me, it's an easy question. Mm -hmm. As the Chief Justice of California leading the California Judiciary, the third branch, I often look to PPIC for data, such a trusted source of information, integrity, credibility, um, and the reports are accessible and readable. And people on my own personal staff were so proud to be surveyed. PPIC is calling me about a survey. And, you know, the attorneys are generally hard to impress as a general rule. And so I had also been involved in the speaker series with Mark Baldessari. Mm -hmm. So when I learned that PPIC would be transitioning with Mark stepping away, I was in the same process of deciding whether I was going to re-up as chief justice for another 12 years. My first 12-year term had ended. I thought I would re-up for another 12, and then PPIC came open as a possibility. Mm -hmm. And to me, in many ways, PPIC is very adjacent to public service work. It's very adjacent to court work. We start with facts. PPIC finds the facts. Through the survey and research, they find the data. They write a report. It's peer-reviewed before it's released. It's a solid organization of credibility. And as a justice, and when I sit with six other justices at the Supreme Court, we start with the facts we accept the facts, we hew to the facts, and that's how we decide and create our, our opinions. 
And for me, in this day and age where it seems we stray so far from the facts, there's far more opinion than facts. Mm -hmm. And it's such a polarized society where we can't sometimes even have a civil discussion of how we disagree about how the facts apply. Mm -hmm. That for me, PPIC was a calling, an opportunity, and the heavens parted and Mark is still with us, but he left and I wanted his position. <laughs> the heavens parted, okay. Uh, so, so you you almost you said a little bit about this, but how did your judicial career prepare you to lead a research organization like PPIC? What kinds of overlap do you see in the in the roles? Well, as the chief justice, but any jurist, judge of a trial court or justice on the appellate court or the Supreme Court, we come in at at the back end of a crisis. Yeah. By now, the parties are fighting. Uh, we are courts of last resort. The law, the rules, the guidelines failed. Someone was damaged, didn't work. There's injury. But we at the, at the court, we are stuck with the policy and we are stuck with the laws that animate the policy. And then we unwind it. So we're always in a place of after the fact crisis unwinding in the courts. Mm -hmm. And because we are a judicial branch, we don't opine on the policy or the wisdom of it or even how it was created or even if it was very well created. So at PBIC, I'm on the front end of this policy, informing it, amplifying it, clarifying it, helping to create it with facts and peer-reviewed data and with uh, foundation. And it's an opportunity to do good before it falls apart. Mm -hmm. Maybe if we can inform better policy at the front end, then we won't have as much litigation at the back end of the policy or a group of laws to implement policy that don't work. I see a relationship and I see that it's, it's I consider the work at PPIC sort of public sector adjacent. Yeah. This is not a quiz, but okay. how would you define public policy? How do you conceptualize what public policy is, generally speaking? Well, generally speaking, I would say that a policy is an idea or a concept or a, a a collection of ideas that is manifested in laws that are are meant to effectuate the policy. Mm -hmm. These laws are enacted because they are meant, they're aiming at a purpose. And so a policy, it's broad, it's wide ranging, it's going to cover many, many issues. But a policy is uh, something that I think about that that organizes our lives, mm -hmm. that can improve our lives that um, I think also is something we can rely on when things go awry in our lives. So I see policy as protection. I see policy as safety. Mm -hmm. I see policy as an opportunity for growth and an opportunity to better ourselves, to improve California. And that's why I think it's so important to have, well, schools like yours that that develop the minds, that will, do, will execute the policy, that will write the policy. And we play the part of informing it with data and research for consideration in your policy. Yeah, yeah. But we, we, we think about public policy as almost kind of courses of action sometimes in, mm -hmm. in ways in which we try and direct society. So what kinds of key issues do you think uh, California needs to direct in a certain uh, fashion now? What are the, the big challenges or the areas you think that um, PPIC might prioritize in some kind of way? Well, PPIC is organized under certain portfolio of initiatives. Mm -hmm. So for example, we pursue education, higher education. Mm -hmm. And we have a, a team of researchers, PhDs, and an advisory council of people involved in that business industry who inform us on issues that we write about, that we research, and we survey. So at PPIC, for example, we are understanding who's going to college, how much does it cost, who's getting, who's getting left behind, what is the durability of a college education. Um, and we're also looking, for example, the same issues in, in health. In healthcare today, now that all the lessons we've also learned from the pandemic, what's it look like going forward with caregivers, but also Medi-Cal, which had for a time during the pandemic suspended all eligibility requirements. So it was one come all because we want everyone to be healthy. Now Medi-Cal is drawing back and wanting to now reinstate eligibility requirements. What does that mean for poverty? 
-hmm. What does that mean for health? What does that mean for families? So PPIC studies this to better improve the decisions about who gets covered and why they need to be covered and the cost of that coverage. We're also pursuing um, an economic focus. So California's economy, we're in a year of deficit. We're probably in, as they predict, a second year of deficit. Everyone in this room is aware of these deficits. They are cyclical in California. But at the same time, we have now information that people are moving out. College-degreed people are moving out. PPIC put together a blog that we put on our website today that says high-income earners are moving out. That's different from reports that we have said and studied before. Our surveys show who's leaving. Mm -hmm. A different portion of the economy is leaving. They're citing housing. They're citing employability. So PPIC studies are, we have several issues in our portfolio, including criminal justice. And we study the trends, we survey, we research it, and we write reports, tweets, blogs, videos, speaker series events to inform. Mm -hmm. Excuse me, I spend a lot of time in the Capitol, purveying, showing, pressing facts upon uh, members of the legislature. One, this is, you know, as a policy school, we have many research centers and institutes, and we're doing some of this research as well. Yes. And so we're not competition, we're sharing, right? We're, we're sharing in the mission. And so I want to talk about... When I when I help to steward some of the the centers in their direction, I'm always thinking about the new things we can do, the inventions, and the things that we can do better, the innovations. So when you think about PPIC, are there any inventions that you can conceive of? Any tools that would be helpful that uh, you could you could use the data to create something new? And are there any things that you see that you could do better at PPIC? Yes. Well, of course, PPIC it's our core mission as stated on our website, and as determined by the three visionary founders of PPIC, is that our core mission is to inform and also you know, amplify, clarify, and educate on public policy. And our, we are nonpartisan. We are a charitable trust. We provide a public service, essentially, based on donors and philanthropy. And what we can do better for PPIC that I see is growing that message, reaching out not only to policymakers, but to emerging leaders. Mm -hmm. um, our portfolio is limited to about seven subjects because we're an organization of 85 people. And yet we do very deep dives that we then disseminate in different ways. And so we can reach more people. We, can, we should probably reach more of Southern California, especially when we think about the legislature's fulcrum of power is the Southern part of the state based on all the legislators who are elected and come to Sacramento and represent the state. So we could do more by getting more information out, making it even more digestible, we, I'd like to see us do, uh, we were talking about this earlier, we'd like to partner, we'd like to do podcasts. We can provide material uh, that's trusted with integrity, but we don't know how to do podcasts and we probably would need support to podcast. Mm -hmm. But we'd like to partner with other organizations so that we can not be in competition, but we can share, yeah. inform, improve California when voices of credibility and gravitas speak together. Yeah. Um, and so that's a way for us to improve. But PPIC, for the organization we are, and only being uh, next year 30 years old, I think that we are uh, quite uh, active. We get invited, for example, to provide testimony at the legislature. Uh, we, we, we are known for, as I've come to learn, is table setting. They rely on us for the facts. They want to know what does PPIC think in this area? What have you studied in this area? They, they actively request our surveys and ask uh, Mark Baldessari to brief them, debrief them on the survey results of what Californians think. So we have, we have more growth in us, but we need to partner because we don't have the means and the ability. But we provide a public sector good. We provide research. This is why in the legislature now, they welcome me with, they give me a hug when I see the members because I'm not asking them for money for the judiciary anymore. I'm not shaming them and supporting the third branch of government, harrowing them with my states of the judiciary about give the branch more money. Now I bring information and data and a website and we'll work with your staff and what do you need and what would you like to have? And they hug me because we give, we give away information. Interesting. 
So you were on the consumer side. Now you're on the supplier side. Mm-hmm. What in your role um, now? How can you look back on being on the consumer side to find ways to maybe support? Like if you're on the outside now, you're looking at PPIC as as a person that's now kind of engaged in the work. How can the outsiders, so to speak, do more to support PPIC? The legislature the executive branch, universities, uh, organizations, other than giving uh, gifts to the organization, how could they facilitate the work? Is it asking more questions? Is it providing more platforms to have conversations? When you think about how to be in partnership, even with a public policy school, for example, what kinds of things do you you envision can be done? I think all of that. I think um, especially given the creative minds that um, you are molding at the school, we can partner, we can speak together with multiple voices. I think when we speak with multiple voices, we are more likely to be heard by decision makers. It is true that we need support for programs and for projects. For example, we are looking now to uh, fill out our Understanding California's Future focus. And so we're thinking about building out we should study what's happening in Silicon Valley. We're reading about layoffs. We're really reading about legislation. How is that going to affect California and our future when we have the Bay Area and Silicon Valley? And we would like to partner, for example, with uh, the Berkeley School and maybe with a convening of a balanced voices uh, in Silicon Valley to find out what should we be studying and presenting to the decision makers about the future of Silicon Valley in 10 years? Or are they too the subject of California's uh, deficit budget of, of waves and, and something you cannot build on when it's so unstable? And the same is true for the healthcare industry. We can partner, we can convene, mm-hmm. uh, we can all present and then come away with being better informed about how can we proceed with healthcare? What should we do in ag? How about water? We, we, we are in an abundance now, but we know in a year from now we won't be and we'll be back to these conversations. PPIC would like to partner, podcast, uh, put on events, convene, uh, join and like we are now on a stage with the benefit of the Commonwealth Club to spread the idea that we're all seeking to improve California. Yeah, it's wonderful. So I'm relatively new to California. I came from uh, the second smallest state in the union, Delaware. And uh, uh, go Blue Hens. <laughs> they don't have to go anymore. I work in Berkeley now. Go Bears. Yes, that's the word. Yeah. When, so you, when you say that, someone yells in the audience. Somebody jumps up and, or throws something. Uh, so I'm, I'm actually, as a newcomer to California, I'm a, my background's, I'm a political psychologist. My background's in political science. I've studied government for years, federal, state, local level. California is pretty complex. And the relationships are pretty difficult. And, and so public policy is really complex here. And so I'm really curious about what the rest of the world, I mean, but things get done. It's, it's almost like, you know, there's genie or bewitched. Something happens here and it all gets done. And I think about what the rest of the United States could learn from California. And given your experience in Sacramento and working in the courts and now doing policy research, what kinds of things do you think other states could learn from California as a laboratory or or a place where things actually happen and and create change? Mm -hmm. Well, I think what people can learn from California is that diversity is our strength. And I mean diversity writ large. Right. I've always talked about diversity. It is about its geographical diversity, its gender, its choice, its its cultural, its you you name it. The fact that California has such rich cultures that live together and live in community, and that we meet each other in community and we share community, I think builds is our strength. We are innovative because of that diversity. And I also think that we are more compassionate because of that diversity. Mm-hmm. And we understand issues, I think, of, of other countries because of our diversity. We all know someone we, we, we are, we're friends with, we're close to, our friends know someone. So California, what people can learn from California is that there is strength in diversity Mm -hmm. and that we in California, for the most part, I'd like to believe we celebrate it. We don't just tolerate it. And I think we're stronger and more resilient as, as a result. And we have more creativity from that. I think also people can learn that you can be a super majority state like California is with Dems, 
But that doesn't mean we're monolithic. There are, as you point out, the genie and the bewitched comes in finding out that these demographics are, um, there's our business Democrats, there's moderate Democrats, there's, there's a whole bunch of differences and nuances mm. in the big D in California. And also in California, the Republicans and the Democrats, at least in it from a Democratic political point of view, we find at PPIC through our events that they agree on more than they disagree. Yeah. And there's a whole new school of them coming, not only this year, but next year, an almost complete turnover of the legislature. So an opportunity there mm -hmm. with the emerging leaders, because many of them were mayors and city council or school district, uh, business leaders, they're coming fresh. So we have an opportunity, David, to partner. Yeah, no, to partner. I'm writing it down right now. Partner. <laughs> uh, to partner, to go together and to be able to say, this is what the Goldman School, this is what PPIC is thinking about. And they, I'm hoping that they're going to be open to it. And they have 12 years ahead of them. So let's be friends now so we can, we can walk those 12 years with you. All right. That sounds great. Uh, so we've, we've got a little bit of time. I'm going to open it up for questions. But I've got some speed round kind of questions for you. They have nothing to do with policy, I don't think. But they, they're going to involve a lot of thought. So this first one's probably the most important and critical is what, what theme song do you play in your head when you walk into a room? <laughs> well, when I've been asked to give a theme song, when I, you know, a walk-up song to a stage, mm -hmm. I've given them Desiree's You Gotta Be. You Gotta Be. You Gotta Be. You Gotta Be Bad. You Gotta Be Strong. You Gotta Be all those things. Um, but I will tell you that the theme song that I, we have talked about at the Supreme Court while we're lining up in the robing room has been Another One Bites the Death. <laughs> you heard it here first at the Commonwealth Club. We didn't settle on it. It was just someone's idea. We we all about it, but no one said yes. Nobody pushed play, I guess. All right. uh, there's another question. Have you ever asked someone for an autograph? Yes. Who'd you ask? Bill Gates. Did he give it to you? Yes. All right. <laughs> you want to say what the note was with it? Or did you... No, he just, I don't remember. It was Buca de Beppo, and we spent 30 minutes elbowing each other, trying to decide if that was really him. Why would Bill Gates be in Sacramento at Buca de Beppo? <laughs> and it was him. It was him. That's pretty cool. Um, you win the Nobel Prize. Who introduces you? Uh-oh. My mother. Oh, what was the last thing you honestly put 100% into? Today on the treadmill at Hilton. <laughs> and I didn't have my headphones, so I had to spend an hour in my head on the treadmill. I just didn't think I could do that, but I was able to do Focused in on the treadmill. That's pretty good. Um, what's the one thing that you own that you really should throw out? That's a lot of choices. <laughs> I will say this with respect. My Catholic guilt. That's pretty good. No, it's okay. You can clap through the Catholic <laughs> guilt. Um, someone will make a movie about you and your cause at some point. So who should play your role? I think it should be Robert De Niro. I like that he can be charming, but he can be tough. He can be angry. He can be menacing. He can be gentle. I like that. You talking to me? Yeah, exactly. You talking to me? Exactly. Okay, I like this. Not bad. All right. Your mindset as a leader, if you're a professional team, your, your, your mindset is a professional team, let's just say. What's your mascot? What's Tanny's mascot? A hockey puck. The fighting hockey pucks? You know, we can take a lot. We get batted around. But uh, we're an essential part of the game. And the great player knows, right? This is uh, Wayne Gretzky's quote. The good player plays where the huck puck is. The great player plays where the puck is going to be. Sorry. <laughs> what sport did you play? Oh, see. <laughs> I played basketball and ran track. 
Oh. And so there was a ball in one, and the other one, there was just a track. Yeah. And I learned to play racquetball pretty good, and I got really good at racquetball. And if anybody, any racquetball players in the audience, I can't see hands anymore. The danger in racquetball is you're in this room, and you're hitting a ball at 100 miles per hour, so it prepares you for politics. <laughs> you're always working angles in, in racquetball. Yeah, that's right. Very good. Yeah. All right, so last question, uh, speed round. You're a bartender or a barista, and you have to create a signature drink. What's in it, and what do you call it? Okay. It has coffee, ice cream, vodka, and it has a bit of candy, like a candy cane um, spritz, and I call it, you can have it all. You can have it all. It's even got a song that goes with it. <laughs> That's great. Please give Tony a round of applause for engaging that. All right. So now I have questions from the audience. Uh, and I'm going to do the best without my reading glasses. I do wear those uh, to read them. So first, PPI sees analysis and products are fed into a political process. How do you make peace with dispassionate analysis you work so hard on being potentially held hostage to ideology? That's a great question. Yeah. Well, at PPIC, our core mission is to inform and educate. So we know that when we issue a report and we have our data and we, we provide it and it may point in one direction, and sometimes in many instances, right, or sometimes we may make a recommendation because the research is so irrefutable and it points in that direction. But we are not advocates. We will not lobby it. We will not shop it. We will not insist upon it. We let the facts speak for themselves and we put it in the marketplace and we hope that they are debated and considered. And smart people will use those facts to their strategic advantage. Mm -hmm. When you, so on the second question, it's kind of almost related to some of that when we think about solutions to the challenges. So this question is about the top reasons why Californians might be le leaving the state. And if there's anything post pandemic that's unique about uh, them leaving versus in the past. And, and, in a peripheral kind of way, is it related to maybe some some of the politics of the state as well? So reasons why people are leaving California, and is there anything that's more recent that, that may be special? Well, yes, it appears that, and we say this in the blog, that remote work post-pandemic and the continuation of remote work mm -hmm. enabled people to leave. So we're not saying that was the cause, and we're not saying, but we're saying it obviously freed people up to make decisions about where to live. And then people made those decisions about where to live. And we also know and say in the blog that a certain percentage of the people who leave California for elsewhere buy a home mm -hmm. where they are. Yeah. But we're not seeing the folks who come, who immigrate into California buying a home. So the blog piece, in my mind, raises even more interesting questions about what we pursue. There is the question of employment as well. But then the question is, well, that's so broad. What, what is it exactly about employment? So it, it opens up an idea for researchers to consider deep dives into aspects of that blog. To me, I think it's, it's fascinating because it's different information we've, than we've previously thought about or knew when we see high earners leaving California. Mm. There's a really interesting point that uh, for, for people who, who want to work in California but may not be able to live in California, California not leaving because they don't like the state, but because the, the economic and perhaps uh, just geographic challenges are there. And you were, you grew up, you mentioned the story of growing up in a space where perhaps you could have left and should have left mm -hmm. to find something different. What, what should keep people in the state? I think what you've alluded to, what should keep people in the state. And that is that I think we are democracy in action in our legislature. Mm -hmm. And we also are democracy in action in our initiative process. People have strong feelings about in the initiative and the referendum process, but I haven't heard anyone say to eliminate it. They're saying, oh, fix this, address this part of it. And that may very well be, but California, we have direct democracy here in ways that other states don't have. And again, I'm going to go back to diversity. 
Um, it enriches our lives. Here in San Francisco, where we are located, there isn't a more vibrant community, really. I, I, you'd be hard-pressed, in my view, to go to another city that's so diverse. And believe me, when I go to another city and I am there, I realize, oh, it's not quite so diverse. Yeah. It's interesting. So when you think about a city like Sacramento and, the, uh, well, San Francisco, Sacramento, Los Angeles, San Diego, major cities, are there opportunities to, to, to make these kind of a connected network of an economy? In other words, being able to try and maybe encourage people to stay in the state by partnering with various locations. There are challenges in San Francisco with regard to housing and, and crime and other issues that I think have been pointed out. Is, is there a potential for, uh, or should there be some ideas or innovations about companies in San Francisco allowing their workers to uh, work remotely in those places but not leave the state, but maybe stay in those particular cities or or other areas. I think I think that's a I think that's a really rich area to explore mm -hmm. about businesses that stay in California and how they manage to keep people and attract talent means post pandemic we have a different way of thinking about how to do that. People have had a taste of living and working remotely. So I think businesses have to think about that. Mm -hmm. and, and also part of that is why I think another reason people should stay is California is innovative. We have great ideas here. When I traveled as chief justice to go to other states and I talked about their judiciaries and what they were pursuing, California was always thinking ahead, thinking about ways to provide more service, more access. And we were innovating. And it was new to those places, actually, other states. But I think business has to would, would really do well and as we think about the younger generation that will eventually take over, they're used to being mobile. They're used to having remote access. And I think we need businesses and we in government and politics and t in policy think tanks need to think about preparing the next generation and preparing ourselves and our organizations so that they can thrive in them. Yeah, that's, that seems like a, a ripe agenda for the legislature to really think about how to use economic incentives to to actually keep people in the state uh, mm -hmm. in, a, in a strategic mm -hmm. way. Here's a, a question from online. In 2020, you reduced the passing score for the California bar exam. Is this true? Yes. All right. So the question is, do you stand by this decision and why do you why did you originally do it? Thank you. Well, this had been an issue about the what should be the passing score on the California bar exam for at least in my 12 years, it had been a, a it had been an issue for California for about seven years. So the California Supreme Court oversees the state bar because the California Supreme Court is in charge of admissions and discipline of lawyers in California. Same is true across the country. Every Supreme Court is in charge of bar admissions. And California has our own test. We don't use the uniform bar exam. We have the California bar exam. It is known to be notoriously difficult. It used to be that only California and New York had the worst, hardest bar exams. But many states changed theirs and went to a uniform bar exam or, or did not use their, did not, did not use California or New York. And we knew this and we had a lot of concerns and complaints that the California bar exam did not test competency. It's an entrance exam. It should test competency. And we'd had a lot of complaints and we had a lot of low uh, years, consecutive years of low bar passage rate. And we began to wonder what's going on with the exam. Mm -hmm. So we didn't, as a Supreme Court, didn't just decide out of thin air to lower it to a number. Yeah. We, we brought together uh, committees and academics and, and also um, lawyers and judges. We hired specialists in exam taking. We, we studied it for at least two years mm -hmm. before we decided to consider reducing uh, the bar passage score so that we so that people would be better able to pass it, that we treat it as an entrance exam and a, a competency exam, basic competency. So that's why we did it. We were finally ultimately convinced that perhaps it was not exactly testing competency, that it might have been searching for more. Mm -hmm. So we lowered the bar exam upon recommendations from the psychometrician that we yeah. had hired, along with a number of 
uh, input from the community to do so. We also shortened it. It used to be three days. We shortened it to two days. A three-day test. <laughs> yes, eight hours. And then we also reweighted it. Multiple choice and essays used to be differently weighted. Now we made it 50-50. So we did a number of things, too, in addition to reducing the pass score. As a professor, I don't even like that idea of a three-day test. Even if it is measuring competency, it's just... Yes, it is a physical feat. You need a, you can have it all at the end of it. Even the Super Bowl is only hours, right? <laughs> think about new bars. Um, okay, so a second question, and I'll, I'll try and read this one uh, accurately. It's no surprise that polarization is at an all-time high. As a judge skilled in impartiality, uh, what advice can you offer to policymakers in Washington or in general? And how can we inspire uh, both sides? And as a political scientist, there are many sides, not just two, mm -hmm. uh, to consider each other's arguments uh, at its highest ground. How can we do more, not just bipartisanship, but I think uh, ideology is, is just the aggregation of beliefs, but how can we work to understand each other's perspective and uh, have some empathy and maybe get things done mm -hmm. uh, in a coherent way? I, I wish I had all the answers to that. But I will know that I worked on a court for 12 years of many different uh, appointees and justices who were very different, different ages, different genders, different experiences and culture. Mm -hmm. And we came together around a table to discuss the most contentious, conflicted, is conflicted issues of California. Mm -hmm. And if it were easy, it wouldn't have been before the Supreme Court. It would have been handled by an appellate court. But you know, when I was there, we ran the court in a way that was always respectful of one another, mm -hmm. always understanding that I was talking jurist to jurist and that the jurist in front of me talking, even if I disagreed, is a person of experience and achievement. And I respect their opinion. And I and in return, they respected mine. Even when we disagreed, it was about civility and collegiality, knowing we would work together. Mm -hmm. So we didn't burn bridges with one another. And as a result of that opening of discussion with each other out of respect and civility, we learned from each other. That's the other part. When you really listen to another person who has an opposing view, you realize that it is, it is not nonsense. You begin to understand that they have a point. Mm -hmm. And it may, in fact, not only educate you, but change your mind or change parts of your mind. And we continued to do this because we knew we're not here out of our own vanity. We are public servants, and this is our role. My role here is to provide clarity on the law, and it's not about vanity, and it's not about viral tweets, and it's not about popularity. This is our role. And so it is about remembering what you're doing and who you represent and that you are a public servant. Mm -hmm. And your role of being a public servant is to get things done. And that means to listen to each other with respect and be treat people like you wish to be treated in the process. If we disagree, we disagree. But the next time, maybe we won't. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you care to share perspective on the Supreme Court? Supreme Court? Well, I will share this perspective, and that is, you know, the United States Constitution and the Bill of Rights is over 234 years old. It was written for 3.9 million people, not 336 men, women, etc. It is a document that uh, is revered. It's our charter. Is it any wonder that people have disagreement over what it means? I mean, to this day, the United States Supreme Court is still arguing what the First Amendment means and who it protects. We're still talking about separation of powers on the student loan uh, program of President Biden. It, it, the United States Supreme Court are respected scholars. And here's the other part about the courts. They write their opinions out. These are not transparent opinions. It allows us to disagree. It allows us to exercise our First Amendment with why we disagree. But they are transparent. Uh, and they are scholars, and it is no different that they have differences of opinion. Other courts of makeup in the history have had differences of opinion, and yet they are a third branch. And so I think uh, they have to be broad-shouldered for all the denigration that they're getting. And yet I think that we have to understand that the Constitution and people's approach to it is complicated. Yeah, it's complicated. Uh, turning the, to the state again, and speaking of complicated, this question is very explicit. Is the California dream still alive? And, and to have belief or faith in the, the dream itself, one has to believe that 
there's competence in government and that uh, that people ultimately can be trusted to uh, allow everyone to pursue their passions equally and without bias or discrimination. And so in many ways, the dream is not just about getting a good job and graduating and having a, a credit card, but being able to to wake up each day and believe it's worth doing something. So is that part of the dream still alive? I, I think people have different views of what the dream is, but I think the dream, no, whatever your view, is a vision. It's a vision. I don't know that it is a goal that you can cross off your checklist. Mm -hmm. Are there opportunities for the dream? Just like justice, there are opportunities. And we can hope, and I think it's true, that our other two branches of government that we've elected are doing the best they can to meet that dream and to keep it alive. And there are elected representatives in this democratic republic. We can have disagreement about whether or not they're doing their job or we agree, but that's why we get to vote for them or against them. I think the dream is more alive in California than any other state. Uh, last question. Do you know what are the right policies the state can pursue on homelessness? Let's not, let's not just leave a it to... little right. question. Like, little question. Not just right policies, but maybe some, some avenues of direction, because we know there's no real solution to ending homelessness. There's just not enough uh, of what you need to sustain a home, and people have homes and they lose homes, and there's all kinds of other issues. But what kinds of things can California do to start making progress to the point where the public has a bit of faith again? I think there's, I, I don't know that I can answer this. If I had the solution, I, I, would, I would be trumpeting it be, from the hustings. Taller, yeah. But I will say this, I, as a jurist, my experience has been that homelessness is a, uh, it's a journey. People, it is a number of steps. It's a number of occurrences. And along those ways, there's, there, there could have been help. There could have been uh, a, there could have been assistance. It, they could have been prevent. It could have been prevented. I've always advocated to the governor that in courts we are especially acute to see where people are about to go over the cliff. And again, it's not only not only is it steps to get there. It's a multitude. It's a dynamic uh, issue. There's not any one thing. It doesn't mean the absence of a home. It also means it starts to me early in in childhood. It starts in support systems in childhood, and education in childhood, and problem solving in childhood. Oh, the back end is is sort of like incarceration. We, we've there is it's so expensive to do it on the back end when the problem is already presented. So I think we have to resign ourselves to a host of solutions and a period of time to have this, to, to, to try to, um, it's not going to be cured, as you point out, but to try to address it. And I don't, I, I don't know that throwing money at it is the way to go. I think we need to audit it and decide. I think we need great project managers, but people whose hearts are in the right place, but who are also good business-minded about how we marshal all this money and support. Yeah. I, I don't I don't have an answer for it, but I I'd like to help and participate in some way if someone else does. Well, it sounds like you're doing policy research that can inform the right pathways. And we are. We can, we can partner on those kinds of things as okay. well. Right now, before we we end, uh, this is your chance to kind of say to the audience: three years from now, what do you hope that you were able to kind of accomplish uh, uh, at PPIC? Not, not that that's an end of a term, but just when you reflect back on what you'd like to be able to have done and prioritize and, and show some impact, what are some of those, those things we should be looking forward to? But the things I'd like to see in the next three years or sooner with PPIC is I'd like to see us strengthen our core. And that is we do tremendous work and we operate with, um, with, with, you know, donations. And we provide data, the best data, the trusted research data for policy. That is essentially public sector work that we are doing because we care and the people who, who provide for PPIC care. We're not like the LAO or the Little Hoover Commission that are funded by government. And for us to continue to this good, do this good work, I'd like to see the core of PPIC, our administration be strong, and to be able to enable 
our researchers to do this work. So we have some, I think, management administrative challenges in the future to be the strong entity we are, to provide the platform for our researchers and to provide the ability for them to work at their best and their highest. And after three years, if we had that kind of support, I'd like to see us in Los Angeles. I'd like to see us in the southern part of the state with a southern presence. I'd like to see us partnered with the Goldman School, with Cal Matters, uh, with the endowment. I'd like to see us partner with uh, other distinguished organizations because if we speak as a voice, uh, media will listen, the public will listen, people will pay attention to this. It will, it will, we can form the narrative if we can partner and be together and share that. And I think we can grow issues on econo the economic policies of California. We can maybe even affect policy that affects California's future. Mm -hmm improve healthcare to provide more of it and to provide behavioral healthcare services. We are in such need of behavioral healthcare mm -hmm. services and we have such a dearth of, I think, ability to provide that, particularly in rural areas of California. I, I think there are a lot of gaps to be met, but I would say education, health, the economy, and understanding and being prepared for California's future 10 years from now. We'll have done that in three years. In three years. <laughs> I, I don't doubt it. So uh, it has been uh, a pleasure to hear your thoughts and to learn more about how you lead and how you think about action. And um, congratulations on your new role. We are here to support you. Everyone in the audience, I can tell they're here to support you. And uh, it's been a pleasure having you uh, here with us tonight. So thank you. It's been an honor, David. Thank, thank you. you. I'm David Wilson, Dean of the Goldman School, and this one's adjourned. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.